0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Well, this is another giant episode for me. This is a wish list guest for sure. Today, one of the best storytellers in Major League Baseball history sits down to share his wisdom, his journey, and a ton of fun and a ton of humor along the way. My guest today is Lance Berkman. Lance is a six-time MLB All-Star. He's a World Series champion. He's been named Comeback Player of the Year. He's one of the greatest switch hitters in Major League Baseball history, and he's a member of the Houston Astros Baseball Hall of Fame. He's also been named one of Forbes magazine's most generous celebrities, and he is the current head coach at Houston Baptist University. If you have time, I suggest you Google Lance Berkman. And check out his career stats. Review them for a minute before listening to this episode. His production, his numbers for over a decade in Major League Baseball are incredible. They really are. But that's not the point. That's not why I'm asking you to check them out. I want you to remind yourself of what a giant of the game Lance was and how successful he was and then listen to him tell stories that you may not expect to hear from someone with his level of success. Stories about dealing with nervousness, feeling like he never arrived, not enjoying Major League Baseball, and dealing with some incredibly difficult times even well after he established himself as a star. Lance has done so many interviews over his career. My goal here was really to give you guys some stories and some perspective that you might not have heard before, and I think we largely accomplished that. We hit the highs of his career, we hit the lows of his career, We shared a whole lot of laughs, and Lance is someone who is incredibly comfortable in his skin, regardless of the room, which we get into in the podcast, and I certainly appreciate him sharing space with me for a couple of hours. Lance, thanks for your time, bud. Thanks for the laughs. Thanks for the stories. Thanks for the honesty. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Lance Berkman. Guys, before we get going, I just want to remind you, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast, please share the podcast, subscribe to our socials at Examined Athlete on Instagram and Twitter. We're much more active on Instagram, but either one works to keep up with what we're doing. You can check out more about the show at www.examinedathlete.com, and there's even some merch there if you want to support us everywhere you go. I can promise you this, we appreciate your support, we appreciate the kind words, we appreciate the feedback. Your support, your kind words, your feedback will absolutely never go unnoticed. I promise you that. Thanks, guys. So I was thinking about how to start this thing. And are you familiar with this picture of you with Michelle and Barack Obama? And you're just holding court, and Michelle's bent over laughing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen the picture, but I remember the episode.
0: Tell me what was going on there. I think that's a great place
1: to start. Yeah, so I mean, when we won the World Series with the Cardinals, we got invited to go to the White House. And it's funny, because baseball provides a lot of opportunities that you would never ordinarily get to have. And I've actually... I didn't get to shake hands with Donald Trump, but before that I had shaken the hands of every president going all the way back to Bill Clinton. So when I was... Because you went
0: for an All-American award or something, Well,
1: so Clinton came to our high school when I was a senior in high school. They were, he was doing a tour and they were busing from San Antonio or driving from San Antonio up to Austin, you know, for something. Of course, our high school, New Braunfels Canyon, is right on I-35. So he pulled off and we had this big assembly and i was right in the front and he came through and i shook his hand so that was my interaction with him the previous president with george senior who i met because his grandson played at rice at the same time i was there so i got to meet the senior bush i guess i'd be 41 because his grandson was there and and he would come around some and then he was a big astros fan so when i was playing for houston I got to uh, interact with him quite a bit. He'd come in the clubhouse and we'd had conversation. We kind of hit it off. And one day when he was in the in the clubhouse, he said, have you ever met my son, meaning 43, who was the current president? And I said, no. And he said, well, I can I can arrange that if you'd like to meet him. I said, I'd love to meet him. So the next day I get a call on my cell phone. Of course, I didn't know. That, I mean, you know, like how did they get this number kind of thing? But it was the whoever it is, the liaison with the White House calling and saying, President Bush would like to invite you to the Oval Office Is there some dates that would work for you? And so, of course, we were in season. So we'd already played the Nationals, but we were going to play the Orioles in interleague play. And we hadn't have a day off. So I said, well, what about this day? And they that's perfect. So I got to go to the Oval Office and sit down with 43. And, you know, we had this conversation. Then, of course, when, when President Obama got into the White House and we won with the Cardinals, that he invited us to come. And that's part of winning the World Series is you get to meet the president and go to the White House. And so they, it was kind of funny how that interaction took place. They had us in a room, which I guess is the Lincoln room. There's a picture of Lincoln up and it's like this big conference room looking thing. And we were all in there, the whole team. And so they were filing us into the room where they were actually going to have the ceremony. And I was one of the last guys in line and may have been the last guy in line, as a matter of fact, because as the team was sort of being ushered into the to the room where we were going to do the press conference, all of a sudden, here comes the Secret Service, and they shut everything down. Like, they cut the line off, and I was like, I was the only guy stuck in the room, and the Secret Service comes in there, and next thing you know, here comes President Obama and First Lady, you know, So Obama. it's literally just you. Just us okay. in the room, and okay. I was like, Mr. President, you know, and so I go over, and, and he... And the cool thing was, you know, politics aside, this is where I feel, you know, it's it kind of saddens me a little bit to see what's going on in professional sports because pro sports used to be the one arena where all Americans could come together, and it didn't matter what your political views were. I didn't vote for President Obama, but here he was, and he's the president of the United States. I was honored to meet him and. And he came over and he could not have been more genuine or down to earth and just like, Oh, Lance, how you knew I was, knew everything that had happened in the world series. Like he's a big sports fan and we had a great little mini conversation, very gracious. And then, and then Mrs. Obama came over and, and she kind of joined in and we just had this little powwow there. And I told him a story or two, whatever. You were just kind of, you know, just like a couple of people that you'd meet in a coffee shop and, it was great. It was a great interaction. I started telling, you know, all my Republican friends, I was like, look, I mean, I know you probably didn't vote for this guy, but I'm telling you, he's really down to earth. And now after meeting him and being around him, I can understand why people would vote for him and why heck I would vote for him. Cause he's, you know, just a great guy. So. Well,
0: that's what I've said about him, regardless of whether you voted for him or not. He's typically the coolest guy in the room. He's always laid back. I saw this recent deal where I think he was in a room with like LeBron James, Jay-Z, and he's easily the most relaxed in the room. I mean, yeah, he's just a cool guy. Which actually, I don't know you well, but I'd say that about you too. So I'm looking at this picture. You're just dealing cards and telling jokes, and Michelle's bent over laughing. And I'm just, like, are there? Is there ever a room that you're uncomfortable in, or you pretty much just walk in and start telling jokes?
1: Well, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess just you know when you get face to face with people, you just you realize, hey, they're just people. You know, they put their pants on one leg at a time, so to speak. And I think part of that ease was the president and the first lady made me feel that way Mm because she was so gracious and just it was a great interaction. It really was And, and very memorable for me, obviously. And his being at ease put everybody at ease. And so we just it was like a couple of friends talking about baseball or, you know, sports in general. And that whole White House experience was was great. Well, let's go back to the
0: beginning. So I know you were born in Waco, but you grew up in New Braunfels. Kind of walk us through that. Where did you grow up? What was your family like? Are you an only child?
1: No, I have two sisters. Two They're sisters. Both younger. I'm the oldest. We actually. So I was born in Waco, lived there till I was about six years old. Then we moved to Austin, south southwest Austin. Grew up, played at Oak Hill Little League. Lived there till my I went in my freshman and sophomore year to Austin High. Matter of fact, we you remember Don Baylor? His nephews were at Austin High at that time, and that was the first like guy that I could see. You know, wow, that guy getting the ball a long way. He had these two great big nephews, and they were power hitters. And so, yeah. But I went there for two years, and then between my sophomore and junior year, we moved to basically North San Antonio, but the district was weird and I ended up in New Braunfels Canyon High School so. so and I know your bat your dad was a gifted ball player he
0: introduced you to the game I take it yeah he
1: did so he I mean I give two guys credit for kind of making me into the player that I ended up being my dad would be the first one he's got me started playing and swinging the bat properly and teach me the fundamentals of the game and all that and then of course coach Graham when I got to Rice is one that really helped me mentally get tougher to prepare you for the rigors of pro ball. And, oh, and, we'll get into that for sure. Yeah. What,
0: what kind of a kid were you away from the field? Were you
1: this gregarious, outgoing guy as a kid? I mean, I like to think so. I yeah. You know, that, that, my memory is of, of being that. And and so um, pretty laid back, pretty easygoing, but love to play sports, love to be outside. You know, typical, I guess you'd say, American male of, of that vintage. So yeah, I mean, just, you know, it seemed like I was always either playing soccer or baseball and... Hunting and fishing, that kind of thing.
0: At Canyon High, your junior, senior years, were you a highly touted recruit? Were you no. head and
1: shoulders above your peers? Yeah, I mean, I was always like in Little League, I was always one of the better players in the league. And then I got to high school. And, you know, at that time, Austin High was a 5A high school, which is the biggest division that they had then, and played at varsity as a freshman. And so it was kind of at the top of that. But then when I got about my sophomore year, I feel like I hit a little bit of a plateau where it just kind of you know, I didn't have a great sophomore year in high school. My junior year was a little bit pedestrian by standards. I went to from a 5A to a 4A high school. And of course, back then there wasn't, we didn't have quite the access to technology now. As I've learned quickly in my new roles, like there's not a kid out there that there's not some video or some information and everybody kind of knows who the players are. But back in those days, it was more word of mouth, a scout had to see. Uh, there could still be like a backwoods, you know. Oh, this kid, we, you know, nobody knows about him. But and so that's kind of how I got to Rice is because I was, I was pretty good during the regular season in high school. And then I played at Aus- for Austin Slam was my summer league team that we played for. Which that's where I played, yeah. Tommy Barnes. Yeah, yeah, for Tommy, played for Tommy for four years uh, in that organization, and I I'd, I'd do really well during the summer, but. The length of a high school season sometimes is kind of short. You don't have that many games. And if you get off to a rough start, it's hard to make up ground. And that kind of happened to me both my sophomore and junior year, where, you know, it was okay not just wow. Because back then, the guys that were really tearing it up were like Danny Peoples and Brett Loeffler and, you know, some guys like that that were getting all the acclaim. And they, they ended up going to Texas. And because my dad had played there, as I know your dad did too. Growing up in Austin, that was kind of like, I'd love to play for Texas or A&M, one of the bigger schools. Didn't really get recruited by either. And so a professional scout for the area, a guy named Randy Taylor, whose brother Mike is as an assistant coach at Baylor now. So Randy was working for the Rangers at that time. And he saw me play during the summer. And he told Coach Graham, hey, this guy, I think this guy will really hit. You ought to recruit him. And now it's all people on Twitter and whatnot, like, oh, they have these big signing days. When I went to Rice to get recruited, I literally drove down there with my dad. I met the assistant coach who at that time was Rainer Noble, who ended up being the head coach at University of Houston. And he said, here's our campus. Here's our field. Here's a guy named Joe Cathy that can show you around. So we went around with Joe, saw campus, came back. He said, we, here's a scholarship. And I was like, well, where do I sign? So I signed right there on the steps of the dugout. And drove home. And that was it. Never met Coach Graham. He had never seen me play before I signed with him. And he basically was offering me a scholarship on the recommendation of Randy. And, you know, thankfully for me, it it turned out really, really good.
0: Our sports careers are going to diverge here drastically. But I'll I'll take this and try not to get off in the weeds. But I played for Austin Slam. Tommy and my dad were really good friends. Uh He played for the Braves for years. But then another similarity. So I'm playing summer ball with a Ranger scout named Ron Tinez. Oh, yeah. Ron, Ron called and basically put in a good word for me at Rice. And then the story I was told was coach called Randy Taylor and says, Hey, who's this Ron Tenyes, guys? Does this make sense? And basically that's how it ended up for me. But, anyways, neither here nor there. So you're coming into Rice, you're a good player, but maybe not necessarily a highly touted recruit. And at that time, Rice, Was becoming a powerhouse. We had some studs. What was your mentality coming in? Were
1: you confident? Were you a bit intimidated? Maybe a bit of both? Yeah, it it was weird because so I signed in the fall of my senior year. So I hadn't played my senior year in high school yet. And so then that spring, I went out and had an unbelievable senior year. And, you know, at that point, started getting a lot of attention, but it was too late, you know, because I'd already signed with Rice. And so when I came to the campus at Rice, of course, uh, the best player was Jose Cruz Jr., and they were sort of on the rise, so to speak. And they had, we had Mark Quinn, who ended up playing in the big leagues. And so we had a we were really kind of a veteran returning team. And I was the only freshman that that got to play because a lot of our team was juniors and seniors. I mean, it was a very veteran ball club. And we ended up making the first regional in the history of the university because I remember before I got there – I was thinking, you know, okay, Rice has been the doormat of the Southwest Conference for years. I felt going in like I had a pretty good chance to play because they were just, you know, it wasn't Texas, it wasn't A They didn't have kind of the superstar guys, with the exception of of Cruz Junior, who I'd never even heard of. So going in, I felt like I got a I got a decent chance to to play and had a pretty good fall and and I think I, I don't really remember much about feeling intimidated or how I just I just remember feeling like hey you know I, I feel like I've got a decent shot here and had a good fall went into the spring as a starter in the outfield and coach Graham I had a pretty rough patch I I remember my first game in college was at San, uh, Stephen F. Austin so we go up there to play a doubleheader I think I went 0 for 4 struck out a couple times and then we came home we played southwest Texas now Texas State got a couple of hits but then I went 0 for 17 and I was not. Then I remember just panicked, like I'm going to lose my starting spot. You know, the this is Division One baseball. It's kind of a you know the game seemed fast, and I remember Coach Graham and one of the few times that he ever showed any sort of affection or, or offered a kind word. I was walking during practice one day, and he put his arm around me and he said, "Hey man, you know you're our guy. You can hit. We're gonna you know don't worry about it. We're gonna stick with you." And he kind of turned me loose, and and then I. I started hitting after that. It was like it kind of took a burden off of me. I joke around with him now because he was like, you know, the only reason I said that is because we didn't have anybody else. Like you, <laughs> you had to play, and so that was one advantage of going to a school, a smaller school, with with that kind of an opportunity. Is I, I had a chance to fail and then recover, and then ended up having a really good freshman year after that. So that's kind of how I. I, I just feel like it was. As I started to get success or you know have success the confidence started to build and you know like when you I had a similar experience when when I first got called up to the big leagues where the game seems fast but in the back of your mind you're like I know I can do this like it's not overwhelming to me even though there is an adjustment that you recognize that you have to make always in the back of my mind I thought I can play at this level and I remember thinking that when I went into college like I saw the pitching I thought in my mind, you know, I can hit that. And and so while there was some struggle and some uncertainty at the end of the day, I feel like I had a sort of a deep seated confidence where I knew that I was going to be okay and just kept working. And, you know, and and that's the key is just you try to get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better as you're moving up every year. And then, you know, we all know guys that were really good when they were 13 or 14 and then they don't quite make those adjustments and they top out, you know, they plateau. I know You probably played with a lot of guys. I know I did. We're at Little League. I was like, this guy's going to the big leagues right out of Little League. And then next thing you know, they don't even get to play in college because they just, they kind of plateaued. So for me, I was never, at that time, I was never like the top of the heap in terms of acclaim or anything like that, reputation. But, I just felt like I kept getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, and then you look up, and all of a sudden, you know, you're you're knocking on the door.
0: Well, what I tell young players, it's similar to your comment about Obama, is once you get in the room, they're all just people. I tell young people, you're always going to have that insecurity, but then once you get out there on the field, you start realizing they're all just people. For me, it was seeing guys like Vinny Sinisi hit, who was taken in the first round with the Rangers before I got there, and then going, okay, I can hit batting practice with this guy. And And we also had... I had to make the team against the best college rotation in the history of baseball, but always tell people that you're going to feel that insecurity. But then the moment you get out there, these are all just people. They make mistakes just like you and you can play with them. What I want to do, you mentioned coach Graham. I want to tee you up a little bit and let you go to tell some favorite memories about coach Graham. You can go wherever you want to go. The one I that sticks out in my re- memory is that there is a God story. Oh man. Um, but go wherever you want to go. And then maybe we'll exchange some coach Graham stories.
1: Well, I've got, I mean, there's so many coach coach, obviously legendary college coach. And what he was able to do and build at rice is, is phenomenal considering the resources. And, you know, it's one thing to walk on the campus now and see Reckling park and it's beautiful and all that. But like when I first came onto campus, there, you know, our fence was chain link. The dugouts were—you had to worry about hitting your head every time you went in the dugout. The stands were rickety. The locker room was across into the in the Autry court. Like we had to run across an open field to get to it, and it was really small. My freshman year, our batting cage was in the concourse of the football stadium. Like we they they would string an old cage up in there, and we'd go over there to hit. And we had a cage that was at the field but it was outside so anytime it rained or any you know in Houston of course it rains all the time so we were always over the football stadium hitting over there in a makeshift cage and and so to see where it where it was when I got there as a freshman, and to, to where it is today, you know, kind of a nationally renowned program, you know, all that is directly attributable to Coach Graham and his ability to build a program and to you know kind of mold guys into his image. And, and so, you're being
0: humble, but guys like yourself and Cruz Jr. and
1: yeah, yeah, and and so we, you know, it's it's success breeds success, and you start to. You know, you get a couple of, and, and that's my sales pitch now as a college coach, because HBU is in a very similar situation. Our facilities are are substandard, and it's a small school, actually exactly the same size as Rice, and and so there's a, so many similarities. So when we have recruits on campus, I'm selling them that, hey, when I got to Rice, this is what it looked like, but in three years, we are in the College World Series, and so it can happen, and you just have to get those player, a couple of players that legitimize the program. And that make it go. And then once you do that, it's kind of a snowball effect rolling downhill. And now everybody wants to come there. And then it becomes sort of the boutique baseball university in the state. And you get a lot of good players. And But Coach Graham is the, is the main driver behind all that. And so he, he was able to take guys that were overlooked a little bit from a recruiting standpoint and get the most out of them and their ability but his technique sometimes was was you know hard to deal with as a player. I'm sure you have those experiences. He was a tough coach to play for. He ha- he demanded a high level of performance, and he wouldn't accept any sort of excuse or any kind of you know equivocation. You either got it done or you didn't, and if you didn't, you know you were going to hear about it. So I have a lot of stories about that. One of those is the the story about there is a god, which happened my sophomore year. One of my favorite stories happened my freshman year. We were playing Baylor in a doubleheader. And uh, it was about seemed like about 120 degrees right on the banks of the Brazos. I mean, humid, nasty, nasty day. And we played a seven inning game and then a nine inning game and the double header. Well, the seven inning game took four hours and we lost 20 to 18. And so it was a slugfest. And the play that lost the game or the the series of events that lost the game for us is when my freshman year I played left field, but we had a first baseman named Paul Doyle who was also a pitcher. So when they put Paul into pitch they would bring me in to play first base so they that's what happened later in the game they brought Paul into pitch they put me at first base and Baylor had a couple of good left-handed hitters and one of them we had a man on first base and nobody out and a guy turns on a ball and hits an absolute missile ground ball right at me at first and I mean in my mind I did everything I could do to try to knock it down get in front of it I mean I, I felt like I went to a knee And the ball got under my glove and made it through into the outfield. So instead of at least getting one out, maybe a double play, now it's first and third, nobody out. That was the winning rally. They ended up scoring a couple of runs. We lose by a couple of runs. So after the game's over with, he gets us all down the right field line and he puts us in a group and he's going around and he's, you know, starting to yell at guys for lackluster performance and, I had actually had a really good day at the plate. You can imagine we scored 18 runs. I think I had three or four hits and maybe drove in four or five runs. And so I felt like I was safe, you know, because I did my job as a hitter. And as you know, like when when Coach Graham got in those modes with the team, you kind of wanted to be on the front end of that because by the time he got all worked up and to the back end, you were really going to get it. So he was almost done. You know, we were getting ready to play that second game. And I'm thinking, okay, I dodged a bullet here. Like he's going to forget about that play. And all of a sudden he goes, and Mr. Berkman. And I was like, oh, gosh. And I'm sitting Indian style in the front of the, the little huddle. And he got kind of the, you know, he was, he was riled up. But then he got into this like almost psycho calm mode where he was kind of like psycho laughing a about sociopath. it. Yeah. And so he's like, Mr. Berkman, he goes, have you ever read The Scarlet Letter? Kind of everybody was looking around like Scarlet Letter? What in the world's this got to do with anything? He said, well, for those of you idiots that haven't read it, he said in the story, there's a woman and she commits adultery. And so the townspeople get together and they get all of her dresses and they sew a big red letter A on the front of all of her clothing because when she walks around, they want everybody to know that she's an adulteress. He said, well, Mr. Berkman, I'm going to petition the NCAA and see if they'll let me sew a big red letter C on the front of your jersey because you're nothing but a coward. (laughs) And then he goes on from there about, you know, not making the play and being afraid of the ball. And of course, I'm like, you know, Indian style and I put my head down to try to duck some of the wrath he got down on a knee so he could scream up into my face you know up under my hat and I just remember him like almost on all fours you know yelling up at me and and so and then I was like man we still got to play a nine in game which fortunately we won but you know he did that kind of thing all the time where you just take one play and You know, make it make the whole game about that one play. And and Well,
0: you had to learn to play under pressure for Coach Graham, no doubt about it. And the story that everyone still loves to hear for me is uh, we were playing Fresno State at home, three-game set. Their Friday night starter was a guy named Matt Garza. You may remember he pitched for years in the big leagues. And our Friday night starter, my friend to this day, I talked to him this morning, is a guy named Eddie Degerman, who was one of the best pitchers in the country. And so packed house. Fresno, I think, won a national championship two or three years after I left. They had a great team. And their leadoff hitter was a very fast guy, liked to bunt, but not a great hitter. And we always had detailed scouting reports. And before the game, don't let this guy bunt. Don't let this guy bunt. I play third base. His second time up, I just have my head up my butt, and he bunts, and I don't have a chance. And so I immediately get ripped from the game in the middle of the inning. Coach is just ripping me in the dugout. I just go kind of tuck my tail. Ends up, kicks off a big inning. And anytime Eddie pitched, there are 20, 30 scouts there watching Eddie pitch. And so at the end of the game, I'm trying to make my way to the locker room really quickly, and he says, Reichenbach, down the right field line. So he takes me down the right field line, and he just gives me a – a chewing like I've never had before, but it culminated with him going, Eddie Degerman's your best friend, isn't he? And he goes, well, you know what? You ruined his career. And that was the, that's the nice version. You ruined his career. Did you see how many scouts were there? And so I'm 20 years old and I'm going like, yeah, yeah, I, I guess I ruined his career. And I can remember I go back to our apartment. We lived together and I knocked on his door and I'm all apologetic and Eddie's just like, you know, whatever, you know, move on. And so the next day I have no interest in playing. I'm just thinking there's no way I'm playing. I got pulled in the third or fourth inning, walk into the locker room, and sure enough, I'm in the lineup. And so I'm like, all right, well, I go through batting practice. I go through in and out, and I'm coming back in to put my jersey on while Fresno is taking their in and out. And I'm getting dressed, and Coach Taylor, our assistant, comes in and says, Coach Graham wants to see you in his office. And I thought, at the time, I'm thinking this is going to be a, okay, slugger, let's put yesterday behind us and move on. You know, we got a big game today and it, it was not that. No. I got 25 minutes of just the worst chewing I ever had gotten. And he knew how to get at you too, because he knew I didn't care for this, but he would always go to, your dad was an All-American at Texas and they didn't want you. Why did I want you? I can't believe it. And just crushing me there. And so finally, he says leave my office and I go and I put my hand on the door and he says one more thing. You make one more mistake for Rice university and you'll never put on a Jersey again. (laughs) That's That (laughs) sounds exactly like something he would say. And, and so I literally walk out the tunnel and the team's already on the field. So I leave his office, walk out the tunnel, the team's on the field, I pick up my jersey, I run down to third base, and I'm just praying, do not hit me a ground ball. You hit me a ground ball, I was going to kick it. And I only got one ball that day, and it was in the first inning. And I remember it because it was odd. They got a runner on second with two outs, and he stole third base, which is odd in baseball. And Danny Lehman, who's now coach for the Dodgers, comes up throwing, and he short hops me. And I pick it, and I get the tag down, and Danny runs up. He wants to give me a high five, and I look Danny in the face, and I said, Danny... I needed that ball in the chest today and he was just like gave me the weirdest <laughs> look ever like I needed that ball in the chest and sure enough I figure things out and he takes full credit for that year turn around on this like horrific chewing. Oh but, yeah. Yeah. But anyways, we may be lingering too long here, but I understand he made you cry one time. What were the sequence of yeah, events? Yeah, so
1: again, same kind of deal where and and you, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, he really had a knack for knowing where your weaknesses were and just burrowing down in there. And, and like, really, I mean, I feel like it was almost like a cauterization of your psyche, you know, where he would go to that weak spot. So, so often that it just became like not you're then you're numb to it. And in a perverse way, it could kind of help you because then, you know, you just, you, you start to learn how to, compartmentalize your emotion, which is a good thing when you're playing baseball. It's not so good when you're trying to live life, but you know, when you're on a baseball field, it's good to be able to like, okay, let me set that aside and focus on the task at hand. And he was really good at that. So my freshman year, same kind of deal where, you know, I I don't even remember the circumstances, although I think we were playing Dallas Baptist or a team that he thought we should have at that time. I think they were division two, like, and we were still, my freshman year, you know, we were still not had not won anything. So sometimes to fill the schedule, like we had to play some lesser opponents, even some division 2 opponents cuz trying to make a schedule when you're not very good, you don't really get the pick of the the litter so to speak. And so we lost a game that we should have won. And again, I felt like I had a good game offensively, but there was something that happened defensively or base running or there was some other part of the game that I had messed up and he just like he started in like you're saying and he and I just remember he kept going you're not a man, you're a little boy. You're just a little boy and you know, we need grown men out here playing baseball and you're and just on and on and on and on. And so when you play for coach Graham, there's never a time when you're fully relaxed and comfortable. Like he's it's even when things are going okay that you're you're kind of walking this knife's edge where you know that just one thing that could go wrong and then sets him off and once you draw his ire you know you're not going to get rid of it and there'd been some things that kind of led up to that but that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and when he went on about you're not a man you're a little boy well I mean it just like it got me you know so after the game I was like I mean I was in shambles and I just remember you know coach Prather who was our he was kind of the good cop to coach Graham's bad cop you know, he pulled me into his office after the game because he knew that I was in, in bad shape. And I just remember sitting in Coach Prather's office just crying like, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to play here. And, you know, I want to transfer. And, and and he was like, now just calm down. You know, Coach Graham, th- this is kind of how he is. And he, so... Yeah, I mean, it was just an emotional overload, and it all came out in one one deal. But that was the the genesis of it was him, you know, making those comments about you're not a man, you're just a you're just a little boy. And I guess I proved him right by by boohooing in, in the assistant <laughs> coach's office. But from that point forward, it was like I don't know if if he intended this because some some of the things that Coach Graham did I think are a, are an accidental byproduct of his demeanor. And, you know, I'm not to say that he's not very smart and he doesn't, but I'm not sure he necessarily was going for the outcome that ended up happening. But for me at that point, I I had a, I had a mental shift to where like, he's never, it's never going to bother me again. Like, I'm just, this, I'll never let him get to me like that ever again. And for the rest of my career there, he didn't. And so to the point where like, he would yell, you know, he would argue with me and I'd argue back, you know, like, no coach, that's not. You know, I'll never forget. Pretty shortly thereafter, we had a deal where, of course, Tanya, who is, is Coach Graham's wife and very avid follower of, of the team, and but she would sit in the on deck circle or right behind the on deck circle. And so, I remember we had runners on first and second or something like that. There were a couple guys on, and I got up there and I got a three zero count. And I looked down, and Coach Graham gave me the not the take sign, just the swing. You know, there were, he just didn't give me the take. We didn't have a swing away. But basically, what he's saying is, I don't want you to take three zero. Well, the pitcher makes a pitch, and it's, you know, my recollection, it was a fastball down and away, not a great pitch to swing at three zero. So I took it. The umpire called a strike. Next pitch, ball four. Walk down to first base, load the bases. Next guy pops up. We don't score. And those are the kind of things where you don't even, as a player, you're not even thinking twice about it. But then the next day at practice. He starts yelling at me for taking three zero, and he's like, "If I ever tell you to swing, swing the bat." Are you scared? And goes on and on and on. And I said, "Coach," I said, "Time out." I said, "That ball was not a good pitch to hit. You know, it was down and away, and not a great pitch to swing at." And he goes, "Don't lie to me." Tanya said she saw it, and it was right down the middle. And I said, "Coach," Tanya's sitting behind the on deck circles. She has no idea where the pitch was. And so we get into this. You know, we get into this back and forth, and and I remember thinking afterwards like two weeks ago I wouldn't have dared to say anything back to him but because of that incident it just the my mind had just made a, a switch and so from that point forward I never had a problem and you credit that with probably into your major league career do you think oh yeah no no question I think uh, coming through that and learning how to manage your emotion and learning how to be mentally tough because I think the the, the genius of coach Graham, if you were just to take a step back and look at a thirty thousand foot view, is he made guys play with desperation? And because he put so much pressure on you at all times in practice, in every and every phase of the game, when you got into those spots in the in a real game that where the pressure is on, it's like normal. Like you're so used to it and I almost liken it to you know this is an analogy I've used in the past and it may or may not make sense to some of the people that are listening, but it's like if you walked into your kitchen one morning and all there was a big rattlesnake curled up in front of the refrigerator. Well, that, that would scare you to death, you know, it'd startle you. But if every morning of your life, you walked in and the same snake was cold in the same spot and it, you would get used to it. It's like, oh yeah, there's that snake, you know, it would, it would lose its ability to startle or to scare because you're so used to it. And coach Graham did the same thing. Like he put so much pressure on you at all times where there was never a break that when you got into that spot in the game it was like well i mean this is how we live i mean we just were well, there
0: i think his standards were so high you alluded to that cuz to add context everyone i know has stories similar to this and we were winning 90 to 95% of our games when i was there i yeah. mean we barely ever lost it was but it was we're not we're not going to let up and i had a podcast with Philip Umber recently and we talked about this and the, I used to get asked what made coach Graham successful. And the thing that I landed on was believing that you were supposed to win no matter who was in the dugout, whether it was Fullerton or Vanderbilt or Texas, and it may not have said on paper we were supposed to win. You believed it. You believed you were supposed to win. And like I said, even when we were losing maybe 10 games a year and winning 50, It's still those 10 games. You were going to hear it. To do you one better, I was playing against U of H, runner on third. I was at 3-0. Intentionally, our take sign was this, and I could see he only went one hand, signaling me, you can swing. And I took the ball. 3-1, I singled in the runner. I got chewed out still for not swinging at that 3-0 because he thought I should have hit it out of the park. Like he was like, he didn't care that I singled in the runner
1: on 3-1. I mean, his standards are just sky high, which is part of his greatness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's cool for me is I was there at the beginning of that transformation. So di- the biggest difference between my freshman year and my junior year when we went to the College World Series for the first time was my freshman year, even though we had great players, there was still a little bit of that when we go into Texas and A&M and some of the bigger schools, like even Tech had a great teams at that time. It was like, well, if we win one out of three, that was pretty good. Like we're we just kind of hoped to win. But by the time I was there, my junior year, we had all bought into it, doesn't matter who we're playing, just like you're saying, we are supposed to win. And if we don't win, there's something wrong. And so being in that period of rice history where that transition was taking place, it was for me, it's a beautiful thing because now that I'm a coach, you know, you see kind of how that happens and the methods that Coach Graham used to bring that about, and you also see the power of belief. And and the very similar thing happened to me when I was playing with the Astros. Houston had never won a playoff series. Period. You know, going all the way back to 1980, they lost to the Phillies. In '86, they lost to the Mets. In 90, uh, 97, eight and nine, they lost in the first round, the division round. In 2001, which was my first pro playoff experience, we lost to the Braves again. So. Right before the 2004 season, we signed Andy Pettit and Roger Clemens. Obviously, two great performers, two great pitchers. But more important than what they did on the field was the attitude that they brought into the clubhouse. Now, these guys that have been with the Yankees that time, Andy, I think, had won four World Series and Roger had won two. And so when they came in, there was this expectation level that went up. It's like, we don't lose in the playoffs. Like we know what it means to win the world series. We know it can be done. And they brought that attitude with them into the clubhouse and guys kind of bought into that. And of course they pitched pretty well. And, and so that was a big part of it too. But we get into the, to the first round against the Braves, who'd been our nemesis in 2004, we go to five games and we win. We win the first playoff series in in Astro history Largely because of the mindset change that we had, with those two guys coming over. And then, of course, the next year we made it to the World Series for the first time in, in franchise history. So, believing that it can happen, changing that hope to belief, or I should say, hope to like knowing like we're supposed to win. To confidence. Yeah, it's a confidence. And Coach was great at that. And I, like I said, I had a firsthand view of going from one and kind of phasing over to the other, to by the time you got there, I mean, that was the expectation. It doesn't matter who we're playing. We're as good as anybody in the country. And to be able to have your team buy into that is is a big thing. So
0: we lingered there for quite a bit, but that was fun. But in 97, you have arguably the best season of college hitters ever had. 431 average, 41 home runs, 134 RBIs. That's insane. So your confidence had to be sky high. I don't know what was different about that year or what, but going into that year, playing that year, that kind of run – what changed that year? Not to say your other years weren't great, but that's just insane
1: numbers. Well, I think it was kind of a, a confluence of things that came together. That's what confluence means, so I just <laughs> repeated myself. But I mean, things came together at the right time. Number one, I had worked really, really hard that offseason because I had played the summer previous in the, in the Cape and had only hit one home run with a wood bat. So going into my Junior year, the knock on me was, well, you know, he can hit with aluminum, but with a wood bat, he's only, you know, he doesn't have the power. So from the end of that summer to the start of that spring season, I mean, I lifted hard. I worked as hard as I ever worked in my life. Second thing was we had the best bats that have ever been, you know, invented in terms of like, just hit it on the sweet spot and the ball would go forever. I mean, those, at that time you could use a drop five. We all use drop fours because the drop fives would dent too easy. So I was swung a thirty four thirty, but the trampoline effect was in full effect. And then the third thing that people nobody would remember, but Rice is a stadium where when the south wind blows, it blows in. So it's not really a it's not really a hitter's ballpark. And its dimensions are standard, you know, 330, 375, 400 with the wind blowing in. That's a big ballpark. When the wind blows out, it's when the wind blows from the north. And so that year we had an extended winter. And matter of fact, we couldn't get to campus to start the spring semester because of an ice storm that happened you know, very similar to the, to the freeze that we just had in Houston this past winter, but we had something similar and then the winter sort of extended. So we had a North wind, we had the wind blowing out for like half the season, which was unusual. So those three things sort of played into, it became a hitter's park. We had the best bats ever. And I was locked in to the, to the point that I'd never been locked in before because I'd worked really hard. And, you know, at that time, you, you kind of getting into your man strength and I've got two years of college under my belt and I'm not the least bit, you know, like I belong here. I'm, I'm the guy that's driving this train kind of thing. And we had a great team. We had a great offensive team that year. So all those things combined, I think to lead me to that year. So going into the draft, you're taken in the first round by the Astros, obviously. Your confidence had to be
0: ridiculous, but I mean, maybe not. What were your goals, expectations? What was your mentality when
1: you're coming into major league baseball? I didn't really have a whole lot. It was weird. Cause again, at that time you didn't, I mean, the, the internet was just starting to come into use. And I remember the thing I remember about the draft was we were, we were at Omaha and we had gotten beat by Auburn, which is another funny coach Graham story. We, the guy that was pitching for Auburn was doing a number on us and we had a great hitting team and man, we, we just couldn't figure him out. You know, he was nasty. And so we, I'd come back to the dugout and coach was like, what's going on with you guys, you know? And Come to find out it was Tim Hudson and, you know, who won the Cy Young like three years later. And and I still give Coach Graham a hard time about it. I'm like, yeah, you were yelling at us and Tim Hudson's out there, you know, guys pitching in the big leagues two years later. So anyway, we had been we, we were sitting in a hotel room and I remember not knowing I knew that the draft was going on. And I had no idea who was going to draft me. I hadn't talked to really many scouts. I thought I'd talked to the Royal scout. They had a number four pick. So I'd talked to them some. I talked to the giant scout who had like an, they had like the number seven pick overall. And so I just, but I just didn't really know. And so we're sitting there before cell phones and all that. And the hotel phone rings and I pick it up and it's my uncle who is a computer guy And he was following the draft on the internet. And I I said, hello. And he said, hey, are you happy to be staying at home? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the Astros just drafted you in the first round. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm watching it on the internet, which we didn't at that time. We're like, the internet, what is that? This guy's a nerd or whatever. But, you know, so he said, yeah. And and my first thought was, well, they have Jeff Bagwell at first base. It's going to be hard for me to, you know, to make the big leagues. I better get my outfielder's glove ready to go. And then by an hour later, the Astros called me and said, hey, we took you number 16 overall. And and it was great. I mean, the feeling of having a chance to play in the same city that you played in college, I was very excited about that. And I really didn't know what to expect going into pro ball. Like, I, I kind of went in with a total open mind. But again, after being – I went straight to high A ball, which they had a team in Kissimmee. And I remember after the first couple of days being there like thinking – I can hit this pitching. Like I'm not I I know I can hit this pitching. And there was a there was an adjustment period going to a wood bat and you know all that, but yeah, I mean it, it just never and I guess I never really looked too far ahead. It's like, okay, let me just climb this rung of the ladder and 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 once I have this, then I can start to look forward to the next rung. You know, and I got, you know, started in double A that next year, same deal, like, okay, I feel like I can compete here. Then I got called up to triple A and I had some success there and then you know finally got the call of the big league. I so. think that's a great lesson too is focus what's on front of you. You get too far ahead and then
0: it typically doesn't end well if you don't end up meeting that expectation or that goal. Talk about when you
1: do come up to the big league. Did you feel like you belonged right away? That was very intimidating. And so one of the things that that used to happen or I, I, I let me let me say that another way. One of the things that happens now with a lot of guys that are top picks that didn't used to happen was they they try to get them around the big league team as quick as possible so they'll bring them to big league spring training and they'll let them you know do that kind of thing back in those days like what you'd hear from the front office was unless you have a legit chance to make the team out of spring training you're not coming to big league camp so i had just been to minor league spring training and this was in 99 which was my second second spring training so i went to spring training in 98 in the minor leagues went to spring training in 99 in the minor leagues and had never really been around many of the big leaguers and got called up halfway through the 99 season. And so walking into that clubhouse in the Astronome for the first time, you know, you got Bagwell, you got Biggio, you got all these, it was a very, very much a veteran laden team. And I felt so out of place and so disjointed and so uncomfortable because I didn't, you know, like you don't know how to be. And then you don't, when you get a chance to play, you feel like you're letting everybody down. You're the new guy. Like I got to earn my stripes and I really got to produce here and, you know, ended up not doing as well as I wanted to. In retrospect, it wasn't terrible, you know, in the, in that set of circumstances. But at the time, I remember feeling very out of place and very uncomfortable. Although, when I would take my at-bats, in the back of my mind, again, I'm thinking, not that there weren't some guys that you were just like, holy smokes. I mean, that's that's a pitch I've never seen before kind of thing. But for the most part, you felt like, you know what? If this guy makes a mistake, I got a pretty good chance right here, you know? And, and you start thinking that. And and so that whole year in 99, you know, I just felt like I survived and the game was really fast. Everything, all the ball, ballpark seemed huge. It, it was a very unsettling feeling. And what's funny is I ended up feeling the same way when I went to New York, cause I got, tra- I'd been in Houston my whole career, got traded to New York and walking into that clubhouse, kind of similar in terms of, I'm the new guy, I've got to earn my stripes, i got to prove that I belong here. Even though I'd already been an established major league veteran, when you go to a new team, you kind of, like I'd, I'd had a bunch of big hits and a bunch of big moments for the Astros, so I'd built up sort of a, a bank account of success that you could draw on if things weren't going well, like, oh, well, this guy's come through in the past, we know he's going to in the future. Well, when you go to a new team, you don't have that. It's all like earning it all over again. And so feeling that same disjointed, sort of of out-of-place type feeling there that I did when I was a rookie in in Houston, and that's that's tough. I mean, that's a tough part of professional baseball.
0: Well, I would definitely want to go back to New York, but to linger on Houston for a bit. So in 2000, you rip off nine years of just insane production. I don't want to scratch a sore spot, but maybe borderline Hall of Fame production in my mind. When you're on a tear for that long, do you ever get to a point where you're just – you've eliminated self-doubt and you're just confident that things are going to work out or are you always battling highs and lows even in that nine-year stretch
1: oh yeah i mean you ride the roller coaster for sure because mm-hmm. the one thing you one thing you realize about professional baseball really quickly and when i coached in high school the kids would ask me what's the biggest difference between pro ball and like amateur baseball I'm like the biggest difference is in pro ball you you're competing on a knife's edge the whole time because you realize the best of the best every year are coming to try to take your job. So there's this built-in external motivator that what you have is temporary. You slip up a little bit and you're you're gone. I mean, they just – what have you done for me lately? If you're not producing, they're going to find somebody that will. And there's thousands of kids every year that come into the system, and they're all trying to take your job, so to speak. And so you never it's never really talked about, but it's just something that you know and you feel as a player. So I never felt – like I've arrived, you know, there were years where I was like, I'm having a great year. I guess overall you feel comfortable and secure in your place, but game to game, you feel like you always got to earn it. Like you always got to produce. There's The team's always counting on you. So there's this constant expectation of performance that you do. Like if I was 0 for 4, I was miserable. Even in 162 games, it was very hard for me to blow off a bad performance. And so I would stew over that until I had a good performance. And then, you know, it got to the point where – The good performances are more like a relief because you could sleep at night. You didn't really enjoy success. It was more like, okay, I can take a deep breath because I homered and drove in three runs last night. And that only lasts until the next game starts. And then you got to kind of get on the horse again and and see if you can do it again. So it makes it where I, I would say that I didn't really enjoy playing professional baseball just because of that, because there's this constant pressure that's on you. And of course, it's a—it's like any other job. I mean, there are parts of it that you enjoy, but it is a job, and you recognize that it's something that can be taken away from you, just instantaneously. And so, I think because of that, you never really relax. You never really enjoy it. I enjoy it much more now, looking back on it, than I ever did when I was doing it.
0: That's wild for me to hear, because from the outside looking in, I'm thinking you're multi-time all-star. You're an established player, a professional's professional. I would have thought for sure you would have felt like you belonged and kind of, I don't know, got a little more comfortable now. But maybe that's that's what that's the way you have to be to perform at that level. If you don't keep that pressure on yourself, you're going to end up losing your job. You maybe think that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think there's something to the old inverted you hypothesis, which if you had any classes at Rice kinesiology-wise, I mean, you learn that you need a certain amount of anxiety to push you to the top of your game Now, too much anxiety, you start to come down the other side. That's where that inverted U comes from. So you need a certain amount of fear to push you up. And then if it gets to be too much, you'll ride back down that other side. And so I do think you you have to have that fear of failure, that fear of being embarrassed, whatever you want to call it, because that can help drive you. I always tell guys, you think you can run faster, you know, if we're running for fun or if I turn a German Shepherd loose on your rear end and you're running for your life. I mean, you can always run faster when you're running for your life and playing baseball at the professional level at the major league level feels that way like you're playing for your baseball life every day and that's part of the the mental baseball is, is kind of death by a thousand cuts it's not like football or basketball with the real physical demands on every game because you know the physical demands on baseball happen over a period of time you get fatigued because you're playing so much you don't have like that one impact like you do in football that takes you out it's just like these little nicks and cuts that you get over the course of a season and then you get exhausted but mentally it's really exhausting cuz you're having to be up for every night i mean you're playing literally every night and some of the other sports you know you play then you have a week of practice where you can kind of recharge mentally and then you ramp up and you play again baseball you got to be ready to go every night and that over the course of a long career is part of what drives you to retirement cuz you just you you run out of the capacity to be able to get yourself in that mode and it, and it starts to show in your performance.
0: Well, let's talk about a great performance. My most memorable performance of yours is probably the 2004 home run derby. And I'll tell you why, because I was at rice in summer ball and we were at a host family's game room and we had players from all over the country, Fullerton and Mississippi state and Florida state. And we all had gathered. I remember there were two of us from rice and here was our guy, Arisal, not only in the Derby, but the way I remember it, just ball after ball after ball leaving the stadium completely. Like no one in the Crawford boxes were catching your balls. Tejada hit plenty into the Crawford yeah. boxes. And he may have taken home the trophy, but you won that dang thing. What was your experience? Do you remember it like I did? I mean, was that just the nuttiest experience oh, for you? Oh, it was you?
1: crazy. It was, it's it's Top five all of my baseball experiences of all time, for sure, just because it was home crowd. Everybody was rooting for me. And and it's and it seems like – the Home Run Derby seems like, oh, you should be able to do that. You're a pro hitter. The guy's lobbing it in there. You should be able to hit it out of the ballpark whenever you want. It's really – it's crazy because when they pull the cage away and it's like there's nothing around you, you kind of feel like you're hitting out in a cow pasture, there's sort of an uncomfortable feeling, everybody's looking at you, and, and you're thinking, like if a guy's throwing 95 miles an hour and you swing and miss or strike out, no big deal. Like guys throwing 95. But when a guy's lobbing it in there and you do something stupid and you you know, heaven forbid you swing and miss or something like that, it's really embarrassing. So there's there's an added pressure to that whole competition that is it's nerve wracking. And so to get up there and to have that good performance and to get into a groove. And I mean, I was, that's as hard as I've probably ever swung. And I think I just, I got tired. Like I felt like I'd chopped down a forest worth of trees, you know, just swinging and swinging and swinging. And the cool thing for me, is I look back, I have a picture in in our weight room of like of us before the home run derby, they brought all the contestants out and it's me and Barry Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. And Sammy Sosa and uh, Jim Tomey, we're all and Rafael Palmero, We're all on steroids and all in that <laughs> in that in that derby. And I'm like the I'm like the midget in this picture. And you can see these guys are huge. And to think, oh, well, the two smallest guys, me and Miggy, you know, ended up making it to the final. is pretty cool, you know, thinking back on that.
0: Well, and like I remember, I just remember me and Lyndon Duplessy were playing in the summer ball league, and we were just so proud to be Rice Owls because I mean, like I said, just. No balls were scraping the the back wall. They were going out of the stadium. And I can even remember the announcer was so excited and asked you about how excited and true Lance Berkman for him. You're just like, well, you know, I prefer to hit with the roof closed, actually. I think that was, <laughs> yeah. that was just <laughs> but yeah. anyways, we were proud to be Rice Owls, man. That's probably my greatest experience. Let me transition to something a little more serious because throughout my professional career, The thing that changed the most when I looked at traveling and trying to grow a company was having kids. And I've always been curious about how having kids affects a professional athlete. Because even when you're at home, I assume you get to the park when they're at school, you come home, they're asleep, and then this long season, 162 games did it make performing at a high level more difficult for you? What was your experience having kids and throwing that into the mix of a professional career?
1: Yeah. When the kids are young, it's not as onerous on you as far as like feeling like you're missing out, but the older they get, the more you do feel that way. And fortunately for me, my two oldest girls, especially they, they have nothing but great memories of growing up. And, you know, of course they remember it's sad in some ways cause they don't, they, my oldest remembers Houston very well, but my, the next three they barely remember it they just remember st louis and of course my last year when i played for the rangers and a little bit there in new york they remember those cuz they traveled to come see me and that sort of thing but you know when you get to a certain stage of your career baseball starts to take a back seat to other things that are more important and so it definitely it drains your emotional battery so to speak to think okay my family's back home. I'm here on the road. Like you start to get older. The game doesn't mean quite as much as it used to. It's hard to keep that edge. And I think that's a big part of the reason I ended up retiring when I did, which I was, I mean, the last good year I had, I was 35 years old and ended up retiring at 37, basically, you know, probably physically had another three or four years left in the tank, but mentally and emotionally didn't have any. Cause it, you get, I just remember, you know, thinking sitting there my last year, I was hurt quite a bit, but I remember sitting on the bench and I wasn't playing. I'm thinking, I don't even care what happens in the game. Like I'm, you know, my mind is elsewhere. My heart's elsewhere. And so eventually having those kids and wanting to be a part of their life and not wanting them to grow up where they get to see in five minutes and passing, it it does, it takes a toll. Now from their perspective, it's not as bad as as it is from my perspective. uh, And I'm thankful for that. The girls are all, have grown up well-adjusted, and they, they have nothing but good memories from my career. But there's no doubt, especially when they got older, that that was a big part of the pull away from the game for me.
0: Yeah, I had a psychologist on the podcast a few weeks ago, and one of the things I said to her is, I truly believe that dads missing out on their kids are missing out more than the kids that are missing out on their dads. It's the dads, really, that are that are missing out. And I've always been curious about that because I, I was trying to uh, take a company to Baltimore, and I remember... I was so excited. We were first trying to grow this company. And then we go in like day one of the trip, I'd be going, all right, ready to go home and see the girls. And I was just curious if that's a difficult thing as a professional athlete.
1: Yeah, but, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt, but, they, but they're but they excited. We're, we have the 10-year reunion of the St. Louis Cardinal World Championship team this year, and they all want to go. They're like, we want to go to St. Louis. Oh, yeah. We love St. Louis. Know? So they, they have great memories of it. And the other thing too, is they didn't know any better. I mean, when the kids grow up a certain way, it's like, that's just normal to them. It's not like, it's really, it's funny because my youngest has a lot more problem with me even now, like taking a trip than my oldest, my oldest girls. When if I was like, Hey, I'm going to go here or there for a couple of days, they're like, all right, see when you get back, no, no big deal. My youngest now, cause she's used to me being around that absence is noticed a lot more, but the, but the ones that grew up, Kind of in that baseball lifestyle to them, that was just—it was hard. Everybody on did, yeah. yeah. It was harder on me. Let's
0: go back to New York for a bit because you had that outstanding road with the Astros in 2010. You end up being traded to the Yankees, and I can remember hearing about that and thinking, "Wow, Lance must be excited. He's going to play in New York, this great franchise, all these great players chasing a World Series." But it ended up being a very difficult time in your career. I even read a report that you were on the verge of tears for most of the first few weeks there. What was so difficult about that time?
1: Well, I think partly that was just Houston has been my home for so long. And and when you, I think naively really looking back, you think, Oh, this is my organization. You know, you feel like I have this loyalty. I'm a Texas guy. I played college ball at rice here in Houston. I got drafted by the Astros. It's the only organi- organization I've ever known, I know everybody. I know the everybody that works in the front office, the ticket takers. I know everybody, you know, and you just are very comfortable in that environment. And then you go to a place where you don't know anybody and you're having to kind of remake yourself. And so there's a, there was a lot of sadness, one, because I, I general, genuinely envisioned myself being a career Houston Astro, kind of like Craig and Jeff were and just finishing there. And, you know, I would be perfectly content with that. You know the organization took a turn and went another direction. And ended up selling. You know, you know. So it was the, it was like the purge before they were going to sell it because they didn't want a huge payroll when they went to go market the team. So you you could kind of see. You know, the year before they had traded Lidge, who was a good buddy of mine, and then they started getting rid of all the Chris Burke got traded. He's a good buddy of mine. They started trading off all the guys, and then they didn't resign Andy. He went back to New York, which was a big reason I ended up deciding to accept the trade to New York is because he was there. But you started to see sort of the. The death of a franchise, so to speak, as you knew it, and then on top of that, you know you're out of your comfort zone, so there was a lot of things that were that were sad, and then on top of that, I wasn't playing very well and had been had a knee surgery in spring training, never really got going at all was was really scuffling with my swing, so it was just kind of a down year the worst year of my career by far statistically but and also emotionally where you're having to deal with a lot so yeah i mean it was that's the that's kind of the the harsh or hard side of professional ball, it's like, Hey, you're just a commodity, you know? And, and yeah, you've been, you've been here 12 years and we appreciate it, but we feel like we got a good deal here. So we'll trade you. And, and it's hard to even now thinking back, it's hard to think, man, you know, it's there, there just wasn't that reciprocation of you're our guy. This is your organization. It's not like that in in pro sports. It is as long as you're, playing well, and the team's doing good and everything. But as soon as it starts to turn, well, you know, they'll find somebody else. So, And, and I don't blame the organization. I mean, that's how you have to run a pro organization. But part of the, the human side of that kind of stinks. Well, I think
0: it's refreshing or at least a lesson to hear that someone who was an established star, a pro's pro, and someone who's so comfortable in their own skin was still going through these highs and lows at this part of your career. I mean, it's fun to hear about home runs leaving the yard. It really is. But I think this is where the learning takes place that you're still dealing with these things, you know, giants of their game, if they will, Hope that term doesn't embarrass you, but someone who is obviously established is still dealing with the same ups and downs as, you know, someone like myself or some normal person. I think that's where the learning is. I think it's refreshing to hear.
1: Yeah. And, and I think it's just, you know, we're all human beings and, and it's very difficult to not have normal human emotions when you're, going through something like that. I mean, you hear, but you hear it all the time. I mean, it, it, I think in Americans, um, Americans tend to deify sports figures. Uh, that's part of our culture. You know, it's like these, these great giants of sport and you forget that, oh yeah, they're human beings. I mean, you hear, I mean, you listen to Michael Phelps talk during the Olympics, I mean, the greatest Olympian of all time. And he's, it's not, it's never enough. Like that, that achievement's just never enough. And there's you know things that come with that high. There's a price to pay for high performance and and making that what you're all about. It, that when it does end and it kind of comes crashing down, you're like, well, that's it. You know, <laughs> you start to cast about, and and so I've definitely experienced that that same range of emotions and and having to to fight through some of that. And you know, the one thing about the that whole New York experience, number one, the Yankees have a, a wonderful organization. I mean, everybody there treated me unbelievably well, first class in every respect. And the second thing is I, I feel like I learned a valuable lesson. Cause I remember thinking, you know, I hit one home run in the regular season while I was there. I was there half a year, you know, and didn't hit 250 or 240 something, which is now, I guess that would be, you'd be an all-star if you did that. But back then that was not good, you know, to hit that, to hit that low. And I remember thinking, you know what, that this is not good. Like I'm miserable uh, emotionally, but I have a job to do, and no matter what happens for the rest of the year, I'm going to work as hard as I've ever worked. So I got in the batting cage. I was a, I tried to be the first guy there. I'd hit a ton, worked with their hitting coach. And by the end of the year, I ended up – like we made the playoffs that year and made it to the ALCS, lost to the Rangers in, in, games, in six games in the ALCS. But I actually had a really good postseason, which I remember it, but not, not anybody – you'd have to be a baseball nerd to remember that. But I finally got my swing back at, towards the end of that year, and I was like – I, I kind of was proud of myself for saying, all right, like you were in a really tough spot. But my response to that was I just got to work my way out of it. And that's what I, you know, I tried to do that. And then the fruits of that labor showed up at the end of the at the end of the year to we're heading into that off season, which was that I was just in a great mode going into that off season where I was like, all i right, right, I'm, I'm going to get all the way back. And that's when, you know, I started really working out and getting in better shape than I'd been in partly do because I had the knee surgery and hadn't been able to do much, but really got back into a good mode. And that's, you know, when I signed as a free agent with the Cardinals and that led into maybe my favorite year of my whole career after that down. So it kind of went through a valley and then came out of it on the other side and and learned some valuable lessons. Well, I think
0: that's another great lesson is number one, those feelings of or those highs and lows are ubiquitous. They're universal to us all, but the way to get out of it is just, just keep showing up and keep working, keep trying to stack bricks every day. But, Let's go to 2011. So I had on here, the quote I put, it had to be your most satisfying year of your entire career. Walk us through the decision to go to St. Louis and then what that year meant to you.
1: Yeah, so when I, when I knew I was going to be a free agent because the, the Yankees weren't going to pick up my option, I had an option on my contract, so they decided not to, which I knew they weren't going to. Immediately, I thought about St. Louis as a, as a destination because, number one, I had a lot of friends on that team just from playing against them all those years with Houston. Number two, I wanted to go back to the National League, which again, some of that's like comfort zone driven. I was very familiar with all of the, you know, when you, it's funny because there's a ton of interleague play now and we had interleague play when I played, but it wasn't quite as prevalent on the schedule as it is now. And so you used to really know your adversary very well when you run a league for a long time. So, spending twelve years in National League. Like I knew every reliever coming out of the pen. I knew you know you just knew what to expect, and it makes a big difference at that level because part of being a successful hitter at the major league level is mental, is like knowing who the like having seen a guy before, having faced him, having a memory bank of okay, this is what he did to me last time. I know what I know what he likes to do. I think it goes back to feeling comfortable. We've yeah, been talking about that the whole time, right? And so. I wanted to go back to the National League because I knew all the – I knew it. And the American League, it was like everybody that came out of the pen, I never even heard of them. I was like, not only do I not know what they throw, I've never even heard of this guy. So that was important to me. The Cardinals organization had, had to me, like been the penultimate as far as classy organization. They have a reputation for having the greatest fans in the game, which is well-deserved. So I really had a lot of respect for Tony La Russa, you know, who was their manager, and looking – kind of handicapping the field – I looked at it I was like you know what I think they have a great chance to win the World Series next year. So it, they they pretty much checked every box and honestly like that was the that was where I was going to go as a free agent. Like I didn't there wasn't even really a, another place that I even considered. And so it just so happened that they were interested in me also and it, and it worked out.
0: Talk about nerves a little bit, because I, I wrote down a quote here from you that you said, if little kids knew what it feels like to play in a World Series, they would never pretend to play in a World Series, which again shocked me a bit that you dealt with some pretty bad nerves throughout your career. Talk a little bit about that, and then what was your experience with nerves, and then what was your strategy to overcome them as successfully as you did?
1: Well, I think it's just, I, you know, another one of my favorite quotes when I I usually, when I talk to like younger hitters or, you know, some of the younger big league guys, I'm like if you can't hit in the fetal position, then you can't play in the big leagues. Cause meaning like you're going to feel these overwhelming, this fear of failure, this, the, these butterflies, but you have to be able to push through that and you have to be able to compete despite your fear. And that's, to me, that's the definition of bravery. It's not, not feeling fear. It's being able to perform in spite of your fear and pushing through your fear to do the best you can. And so part of that comes from the way I was raised. I mean, my dad was very instrumental in instilling that type of thinking in me. The, another part of it is like, Hey, I have this duty to my team. You know, my team's counting on me. It's not just me. I have other people that, that are counting on me to perform. So you got to do it. Like you got to get in there. I don't care what you feel like you got to, you got to go. And so you just kind of learn how to, again, compartmentalize. We talked about it with coach Graham. So you take that fear And I felt like I could channel that fear into concentration. So I would take this, you know, this energy ball that was in my gut. And it was almost like I'd visualize pushing it up through into my eyes, like where I was just so laser focused on what I was trying to do, which to me, that's how I teach kids how to, you know, how do you hit in a big spot? Well, your focus is supremely important. Most guys, when they get into that situation, they're thinking and looking at too much. Like they're seeing the crowd, they're seeing the defense, they're seeing everything. And you really got to you got to narrow your focus on the job at hand. And I use that negative emotion to try to channel that concentration to just the ball. Like I'm just going to get a good look at the ball. And if you can do that, then you, your training sort of takes over. You know, you've taken thousands of swings. If you can narrow your focus on the ball, your body knows what to do. So you're going to have the right reactions. And that's kind of how I was able to manage some of that. But Another thing I tell people is, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in prayer. And so uh, I have a couple of funny stories about like prayer. You know, people ask me all the time, well, how does that work? You know, if this guy's praying and you're praying and y'all are playing each other, who does God honor? Like who wins? Well, going all the way back to, to my Astro days in 2005, we were on the precipice of the World Series for the first time in Astro history. If you're Astros fan, you'll remember the year before we had lost to the Cardinals in seven games You know, and they went to the World Series and got beat by the the Red Sox. Well, the next year, we're back in the same situation, but we're up three games to two, uh, and we need to win one more game to go to the World Series. And we were playing in Houston, and Chris Carpenter was on the mound for the Cardinals, and we were down two to one in the seventh inning. And I hit a three run homer to put us up by two runs and six outs away from the first World Series in, in Astros history. And I remember I was at first base and I started praying. I was like, Lord, if you just let us get these last six outs, I promise in the postgame press conference, I'll give you all the glory. Like the first thing I'll say is, you know, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you know, the whole deal that athletes do. It's like, I'll do that. I promise, you know, just let us get these last six outs. We get three outs, no problem. We go, we don't score in the, in the bottom of the eighth. We go out there for the top of the ninth. We need three outs. Lord, just let us get these last three outs. I'm making this deal with God. And so we get two outs, no problem. David Eckstein comes up. We get two strikes. We're one strike away. People are starting to like, you can see they're going to charge the field. And in my mind, I'm like, well, should I let them carry me off on their shoulders? I'm like, (laughs) like, I'm going to be the hero. And this is amazing, Lord, but I'm not going to forget my promise. (laughs) And so then next thing you know, he rolls a single through. And if you're an Astro fan, you know what happened. Jim Edmonds walks on four pitches. Albert Pujols comes up. He hits a three-run homer that trumps my three-run homer, puts them up by a run. The place went from pandemonium to dead silent in a heartbeat, and it was sickening. I mean, literally everybody wanted to throw up on the field. I oh, remember I think that was Lidge, right? That had to be Yeah, Lidge, on Lidge. He gave up the
0: homer. Oh, that was tough on him.
1: And so I could I, it got so quiet, I could hear Albert's spikes digging into the dirt as he rounded first base. I mean, it was crazy. And I thought, Lord, that's not the deal. You know? <laughs> so we go in after the game's over with, and of course, we're devastated. We're sitting around our locker and somebody flips on the TV. And who's in their postgame press conference giving God all the glory for his three-run homer was Albert. And I was like, "Dadgummit!" You know, God, you you answered his prayer, and not mine. But it taught me a valuable lesson in that you know God doesn't need me to get glory for Himself. He can use whoever He wants to. So part of that was humbling, and how that ties into to your initial question is fast forward. You know, six years back in the World Series or trying to back in the playoffs, we ended up winning game six in St. Louis. We went to the World Series, got swept by the White Sox. That was that story. So then now now I'm right here in, in the World Series, and we were playing the Rangers, who had a great team, and uh, our four-hole hitter that year was Matt Holiday. So that year, the normal everyday lineup was Albert Pujols hit third, Matt Holiday hit fourth, I hit fifth. And so Matt had gotten hurt in a game in the playoffs, and so his hand was bothering him. So Tony came to me, Larusa, and he said, hey, I'm going to hit you fourth behind Albert instead of Matt. I'm going to flip-flop you and Matt in the lineup. He's not swinging the bat too well. He's got a hurt hand. Okay, no problem. But that meant that because I was hitting behind Albert, who at the time was the greatest hitter on the planet, that they weren't going to pitch to him. They were going to make me beat him in classic baseball fashion. So... We get into that game six where we have to win. We have to win game six and seven because the Rangers were up three games to two. Game six, we're down two runs in the ninth inning. You know, Albert gets on, I get on, Freeze hits a triple. We score two runs, we tie the game. We go out there, top of the 10th, Josh Hamilton hits a two run homer to put him back up by two runs. And so now we've overcome one two run deficit. The chances of us doing it twice in back to back innings is almost zero. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the Rangers deserve it, they have a great team. Uh, you know, but I looked up at the video board after the homer and I realized that I was coming up six, that inning, the bottom of the tent. And I thought, oh man, here it is. And so I had been praying as soon as Tony had told me that I was going to be hitting behind Albert, I started praying. I was like, Lord, if I have a big at bat, just don't let me be overwhelmed by the situation. Let me be focused. Let me be calm. Let me be able to compete with the ability that you've given me and whatever the outcome is, let me be okay with it and that was my prayer and we had i'd had plenty of time to pray because we had an off day we had a rain out and so we had like three full days and literally i'm constantly thinking about this and praying and so sure enough we go in we're down by two runs first two guys base hit base hit bun them over we score one guy we got a man on second base with two outs albert comes up first base is open they intentionally walk him and i'm like oh gosh here it is you know and i knew, i mean it was, this is my time and so i'm in the on deck circle And I remember feeling like just super as nervous as I've ever ever been. And that was what made me have that quote. Like if you if a little kid knew what this felt like, they would never, never play it. They would never wish it on anybody. But as soon as I took the donut off the bat and I started walking up to the plate, it was this calm just descended. I mean, I felt so calm, so focused, like so relaxed, just in the moment and there's no doubt that god answered that prayer you know so here i was the first time around in a big spot and i'd prayed other times on the field but these two stories sort of illustrate you know the kind of prayer i think god honors versus the one that is just selfishly motivated like hey i just want to make sure i'm getting all the glory versus this the, the prayer this time was much more humble and just like lord don't let me be overwhelmed by this let me be able to relax and focus and and just compete and he there's no doubt in my mind he answered that prayer I ended up getting a base hit, drove in the tying run. We win the game the next inning on a walk-off homer and ended up winning the World Series. So, you know, that's kind of one of the tricks or secrets to being able to manage those negative emotions is I just, you know, I pray about it. And I pray that, you know, that God would take some of that away enough to where I can handle it and that I can keep it in perspective. I think having... An eternal perspective helps with all that. Knowing that yes, this is important, but it's not the end all, be all. There are other things in life that are more important than a baseball game. All those kind of things help when you're trying to manage those emotions and focus on as little as possible, as, as small as small as, as small as you can. can. Like yeah. you know, the old deal in, in the patriot aim small, miss small. You know, you go. Mel Gibson tells his son. I mean, that's that's truly it. Like your focus is narrowed to the point and and focused on what you're trying to do as opposed to what you wouldn't want to have happen. Too many people think, oh, well, I got to do this or I got to do this. No, I mean, let me focus on like if you're pitching, oh, I got to throw a strike right here. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. let just relax, see the mitt, throw it through the mitt. I mean, just what you're focusing on is a big part of, of success. And, you know, having that good perspective, like, you know what, this is an athletic competition. It may not go my way and, you know, and the sun will come up tomorrow.
0: Well, I'm mindful of your time. I've got two more questions for you to wrap this up. One's kind of fun, and then we'll end on a more serious note. So hoping to draw one more story out of you here. What's the most embarrassing moment of your professional
1: career? There was uh, several times when I forgot how many outs there were. So I tell another thing I'll tell young players is you, you have to have a fake injury in your bag of tricks if you want to play in the big leagues. And so the story behind that is we were playing in Baltimore. Andy Pettit was pitching this when I was with Houston. And so I I'd had knee surgery so then this was in 2005 so the I missed the first month and a half of the 05 season cuz I torn my ACL playing flag football in the off season like an idiot and so I'd missed the first month and a half. So I'm just probably within 3 weeks of coming back into the lineup from being out and we're in the interleague play we're playing we're playing Baltimore in Baltimore Andy's pitching and there's a runner on first base and in my mind for whatever reason I thought there was 2 outs but there was only 1 out. Brian Roberts, who's a very good player, was, was hitting, and he was also very fast. And so Andy jammed him with a cutter, and he hits this like little squibber kind of in the Bermuda Triangle between the pitcher first and second, and it looked like it was going to be, be a base hit. But I ran over there, and I dove, and I caught the ball, and I spun around kind of awkwardly, and I fired it to Andy, and it was bang, bang at first base, and the umpire called him out. And so we got this, you know, it was a kind of a miracle play. And I jump up and I go running off the field thinking that's the third out. Well, that was only the second out. And I look up and and in Baltimore, the visiting dugout is on the third base side. Since I was playing first base, I'd run all the way across the field. And I look up and here comes the trainer and the manager running to meet me. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I started looking around. and I realized nobody else is running off the field. I've forgotten how many outs there were. So I get get all the way to the manager and he goes, are you hurt? And I said, no. I said, I just forgot how many outs there were. And he goes, oh gosh. And the trainer is like trying not to laugh. And I was like, hang on, just give me a minute. So then I pretended like I'd tweaked my knee. And so I'm sitting there and I took a full... Probably five minutes, like, letting the trainer look at it. I actually ran a couple of sprints up the third base side in foul territory. Now, this is the middle of a major league game, and he's on the mound, like, waiting for me to go through this ruse so that I can get back on the Just field. so you can
0: save face. Yeah,
1: so I can save face. So I, as I'm running back to my position, Osmus was the catcher, and he had gone out to the mound. And he said, hey, you know, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I just forgot how many outs there were. And he was like, you're an idiot. You know, I just remember that as I'm running back to first base. So that was one of the more embarrassing things that happened to me as a big leaguer.
0: Yeah, well, let's end it on this one. I've heard you describe what made your career successful or what made it great. And it's not the awards. So what made your career great? What made
1: it successful when looking back? To me, just the relationships with with my teammates and, you know, feeling like, I did a a pretty good job of living my faith in the dugout and in the, in the locker room and being consistent. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I'm a Christian, but I'm not the kind of guy that's going to like go up to somebody with a Bible and say turn or burn or, you know, anything like that. To me, it was more just showing guys that you care about them, showing that showing them that you, you know, are willing to invest in them personally, living a, a, a consistent life, you know, not saying one thing, doing something else when, you know, when nobody's looking kind of deal, uh, and so I feel like that through the grace of God throughout my career, I was able to, to do that and, and as a consequence was able to develop some really lasting lifelong type relationships with guys that I still keep in touch with. And so it's funny how, you know, you, everybody always says when you're a little kid or when you're a young guy growing up, you know, make sure you treat people well because at some point it'll come back to you and, you know, people will remember that and your reputation is worth a lot. And so I've taken over this job, you know, coaching in college, and I'm starting to see the fruit of some of that coming back in the form of, you know, there are former teammates who want to send their sons to play for me because they, we had such a good relationship when we played together. So just treating people, I think, with respect and with kindness pays dividends, not because you're doing it for to get something out of it, but, but if, I, if I were to say the, the most powerful, lasting thing from my whole baseball experience. It's just the people that I was able to interact with, and it's produced some of the the greatest friendships that I have to this day.
0: I think that's a great way to end it. A great life is not transactional. It's based on relationships. Exactly. But this has been so much fun. It's been a treat for me. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the wisdom, Lance. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's fun to walk down memory lane a little bit, so thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, we got into some weeds. So <laughs> we'll see. All right, man, thanks. You got it.